This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 802, A Conversation with Roger Stern. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is another conversation with Roger Stern. That's right, Roger Stern was uh, gracious enough to come back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast uh, for another great interview. Uh, I cannot say enough nice things about how uh, just wonderful it was to speak with Roger, talking about his his approach to characters, uh, the different things he's worked on. He's worked on so many things. Like, if you actually look at his biography, or, or not biography, yeah, I guess, and everything he's worked on, um, it's pretty enormous. Uh, the different things he's worked on, the different characters, the runs, anyways, and I feel like uh, we've only just kind of cracked the surface of that. Um, it's interesting because in the last episode that I had a chance to speak with Roger on, uh, it felt like we, you know, had a lot to talk about and a lot of really great conversation, but it felt like we didn't really delve into cer- certain books. So with this one, I just tried to, uh, you know, take a, take a little slower at, t- at times and, and jump into some of those things and kind of move uh, throughout his career. But again, with someone like Roger, I feel like you could have many, many, many conversations and uh, still just crack the surface. Uh, if you want to go back and listen to my first conversation with Roger before checking out this one, it's episode 786 from June 13th earlier this year. Uh, and this episode today is, I believe, uh, up near the two-hour mark. I think it's around an hour 45 or so. Uh, so it's a lot of good stuff. And, uh, you know, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, you can always email me at comicshenetigans at gmail.com. You can rate the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Upcoming episodes, uh, 804 is going to be uh, Ian Churchill, uh, Penciler Extraordinaire, is going to be on the show. Um, we had a great conversation a couple weeks ago, so that'll be coming up soon uh, in the coming week. Uh, episode 806 will likely be another conversation with Corey Saddlemeyer, uh, who is uh, the guru for the Marvel Masterworks program. He uh, works a lot in restoration and putting together Marvel Masterworks, and he's just an amazing editor uh, we've talked a lot in the past well we've only had one actual episode but i think it was almost three hours or something so he's coming back for return engagement really excited about that i put out the call for questions if you have questions and uh, you're listening to this before uh, the evening of august 25th please send them along my way um, yes yeah, so good stuff coming up and we're working on other guests as well so uh, stay tuned to the comic shenanigans uh, feed and you will get to uh, enjoy those episodes if you're subscribed uh, so thanks again, and we'll just jump right into the episode as I welcome back to the show, Roger Stern. Enjoy. Roger, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. Well, thank you, Adam. I uh, hope people can put up with my voice for uh, another however many minutes here. <laughs> I'm sure they're more than happy to do so. Uh, they love hearing your stories. Um, so one thing that we, we very bright, lightly touched on last time uh, was the idea that before kind of working at Marvel, you had had some exposure with fanzines, etc. Can you talk a little bit more about what the kind of fanzine scene was when you were in it? Well, yeah, we... Uh, uh, this is when I was still living in Indiana with uh, a lot of Indiana-based fans. Uh, I was, as with many of us in those days, uh, buying an early fanzine called the Rockets Blast Comic Collector, or the RBCC. It was mainly a, a sort of like semi-regular catalog that a lot of, of uh, early comics dealers 
rent ads in, but there are also lots of articles and columns uh, by various people. Uh, uh, Don Rosa, who later gained fame working on the Disney Ducks, uh, was uh, an early uh, columnist at the, the, the RBCC Information Center, where people would sit in, you know, put questions about various old series, and Don, with his encyclopedic memory uh, and knowledge of comics, would come up with the answers. Wow. And if he didn't have them, he knew someone who did. You know? <laughs> so that was, that was always entertaining. Anyway, through there, I, I met uh, Duffy Volan and Roger Slifer and, and some other people who were in Indiana when I was uh, living and working there. And uh, that led to us meeting Bob Layton, who was... Uh, living and working in Indianapolis and uh, moonlighting as a comics dealer. But he was also working on artwork, wanted to, to pursue that. And uh, we slowly turned uh, Bob's catalog, CPL, into a fanzine within a matter of issues. And uh, we, we'd made contact with John Byrne, who was uh, in those days just an early fan artist and we thought his art was really great so we started running that a lot and uh, one thing led to another wow it's interesting how many of you were all kind of circling around each other and like the, these people who'd all be these professionals later kind of very early in their careers kind of meeting each other yeah it was you know it was like it, it, it was easier today with the internet you know, we were relying on uh, the mails and an occasional long-distance phone call, which weren't cheap in those days. Hmm. Now, what do you? I mean, when you when you kind of break in at Marvel, and again, you're you you first are an editor, and then you start writing. Um, who do you consider to kind of be your your class, so to speak? You know, the people kind of coming up with you, who were your contemporaries when you were kind of jumping in, as opposed to people who were more seasoned hands when you already, you know, kind of started getting work? Well, you know, we looked on, on the old pros as, as the real professionals. People like Gardner Fox and, of course, Stan Lee and, and uh, Robert Kaniger and, and, you know, Jerry Siegel and, and Ed Hamilton. Uh, as far as writers go, and, and just, you know, this you know, galaxy of artists, and Carmen Infantino, and Gil Kane, and Kurt Swan, and Murphy, Murphy Anderson, you know, Jack Kirby, of course, Steve Ditko, Don Heck. And, you know, towards the mid-60s, you know, a lot of new guys kept start coming into the business. Mm-hmm. You know, like Roy Thomas, Neil O'Neill and you know, Neil Adams and Jim Steranko and all these people coming in uh, sort of you know just as comics were sort of booming again you had all this new talent coming in and really sort of goosing things up and then going wow and then, then the, 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 the real kids like you know Marv Wolfman and Lynn Wien coming in there and uh, you know, they, they sort of you know open doors that the rest of us came through later on mm-hmm. when when you are starting to kind of write your own stories I mean how 
were you ever intimidated about kind of taking on some of the like the, these legacy books as opposed to writing maybe the newer characters, but actually writing characters that have been around so long, like at that point, you know, the Hulk and the Avengers, these characters who've been around at that point, you know, over 15 years, but, you know, they'd still been through, you know, a lot of different changes at, even at that point. What was it like? Were you intimidated to kind of take that on? Oh, yeah, it was incredibly intimidating. Are you kidding me? We, uh, you know, what, what am I working on? Oh, the Incredible Hulk. What? That was just created by Stanley and Jack Kirby. Yeah, that, yeah no, no pressure there. You know, and then, like, this whole, you know, list of great writers and, and artists who'd worked on the series over the years. Like, you know, well, the ones I just named, you know, the, the, you know, Archie Goodwin had worked on it, and, and Roy Thomas had had this great long run uh, on, the, on the Hulk, and Steve Englehart, when it was first major series, and all these people, and, and of course, and, and then I had to follow Len Wayne. <laughs> oh, yeah, no pressure there. Yeah. But, yeah, was I scared? Of course I was scared. But on the other hand, I didn't have a lot of time to stay scared because mm. we had these deadlines to meet, you know, so I had to sort of, like, jump in and, you know, sort of plan by the seat of my pants, get the thing done. Now, speaking of deadlines, now, I know I, I've read the, um, I think it was in the your the omnibus of your Spider-Man work, where you write the uh, the story in the intro about Amazing Spider-Man 206. Can, for those who haven't heard that story, which is a great story, can you tell us a little bit more about it? Oh, yeah, that was, that was crazy. Uh, I was uh, just starting to work on, on uh, Spectacular Spider-Man, that sort of, other the other Spider-Man book, <laughs> if if you don't get Marvel team, and uh, Denny O'Neill had just started working at Marvel, and he was going to be writing Amazing Spider-Man, and you know, editing you know, Spectacular and Team Up, so we'd have a sort of cohesiveness, a continuity between the books, and uh, I, I was helping out in writing some letters pages for Amazing uh, in, in part of the transition because Marv Wolfman had left to go to D.C. and there'd been, uh, uh, I think, a fill-in uh, issue finishing up one of his stories that Dave Michelini had done and Denny was going to be taking over. So I'd, I'd written some letters pages and I walked into to Denny's office to uh, find out what, what the title of uh, the next issue was going to be because in those days you'd write the letters page and on the voucher you would put down uh, the title of the story for the issue that, that the uh, letters page was going to be in and uh, I don't remember the, the, the title that, uh, that Denny told me but I said no no that, that's uh, that was the previous issue you know and I said you know you know, and he said, well, it's this then. And I'm going, no, that's the issue after that. <laughs> and we looked at each other, and we looked at uh, Mark Grunwald, who was then uh, Denny's assistant, and we realized there was no issue. <laughs> you know, it was like, th through, through a scheduling screw-up, you know, Denny's issue was going to start over here, you know, and there, there was any, 
there was a missing issue in between. And looking at it, we realized, oh, there's still all these dangling storylines from the previous story, and they really need, they really, really, really need to get settled before you know, the next issue goes on. And so I'm like, what are we gonna do? And like, Denny was tied up, he couldn't do it right away. And I said, can you fill in? I'm going, well, okay. So we sat down and just sort of hashed out an idea for a story. And I said, I think this will work. And Denny says, okay, go, for, go with that. And we uh, definitely had to find an artist. <laughs> because John Romita Jr. was the, the regular artist on, on uh, Amazing Spider-Man, but he was also working on some other assignments at the time, so he couldn't jump right in and do this one because he had to do the issue after next so the book wouldn't get late. And we're going, who can we get to do this? And I said, maybe Byrne maybe can do it. So I, I called him up and I said, look, we, we have this issue which needs to get done really fast. Can you work this in? He says, yeah, I, I think I can, I can do breakdowns and can do that, fine. So, so again, before the internet, I, I'd written plot out and I read to him over the phone. <laughs> <laughs> and he starts drawing it. And uh, uh, yeah, I think he drew it in like four days. Uh, which, you know, just 17 pages at the, at the time, but still. Wow. That's a lot to do. And, and, and we were all younger then. And uh, he, he got it done, sent it in. I remember it arrived on a Friday. And I took it home that week, wrote the whole thing that weekend. Brought it in. Showed it to Denny. He read it over and says, yeah, this works fine. It was lettered. Then we had to find someone to do finished artwork over it, because again, this is breakdowns. Mm -hmm. And you know, who's available, who's available? Finally, we, uh, uh, Jane Day was, uh, had just started working a couple years ago for, for Marvel. And you know, so we called him, Gene, can you do this? Yeah, yeah, I can do this. Okay, fine. So we sent it up. He did complete finished artwork over that in four days. Wow. And came back, but, but you know, it's like, you know, of course, you know, John was living out in Alberta, in Canada, uh, Canada, Western Canada at the time, and Gene was living in Ontario. So I figured the artwork traveled like 10,000 miles <laughs> in, you know, let's say a week and a half. And it got done, it, it, it came in. It, it, it was colored, went off to the printer, made the deadline, and people actually liked it. <laughs> which, which, I was relieved, you know, I'm going, oh, if I screw this up. And but I, I, people are still asking me to autograph copies all these years later. So, so I, guess, I guess we did okay, but you know, it's like, you know, how long does it take to do an issue of a comic book? Well, we did it in, in about a week and a half. I don't recommend that. No. But it can be done. Um, you know, speaking of Denny O'Neill, obviously he recently passed away. Do you have any favorite kind of Denny stories? 
Oh, Denny, Denny was great. I, I loved working with Denny. He was, he, he always had some, some great take on something or some interesting story. I remember one time uh, when he was first starting to work at Marvel. Uh, Jim Shooter had encouraged him to, you know, impart his knowledge uh, to, uh, to to newbie writers and, and uh, people working for him. You know, just you know, he was called a he, he. One of Denny's old pseudonyms was Sergius O'Shaughnessy a character from The Deer Park by Norman Mailer. Hmm. And so he would occasionally, like every week or so, do, do a little, you know, one-page typewritten thing, you know, you know Uncle Sergius's Rules of Thumb. <laughs> you know, and, and it was, you know, it was not, nothing hard and fast, but just things that he'd learned while working in comics. And it was like, Two weeks before I discovered he was passing these things out, and I said, how come I didn't get one? And he says, oh, you don't need one. Uh-huh. I said, but I really want one. <laughs> I said, okay, sure. You know? And it was great, like, great little rules of thumb. Like, you know, like, don't run off at the mouth too much when you're writing. You know, it says, it, he said that there's no hard and fa- fast rule on how much copy goes into uh, a panel. But when I was starting out, is always told no more than 30 words in a panel and it says that's just a general suggestion says, but if you look at it if you have more than 30 words in the panel maybe that's too many words think about it huh. you know, and it's like I'm going oh that's a good idea and you know so things that hadn't occurred to me but were because there was there weren't there weren't the wise old men out there to, to give us us young punks the uh <laughs> school on this stuff but, but then he was putting this stuff and, and he did it like for two or three weeks and and then everyone got busy and, and it felt but it was great while it lasted yeah it's interesting it sounds like I mean from what we've seen the outpouring I mean of people telling their, their Denny stories it feels like no one really had a harsh word to say about the man because he and he was so influential in helping so many people oh yeah and it was you know you could learn a lot about writing just by watching Denny you know, and then how he approached stories and things. Same with Archie Goodwin. Hmm. Archie was, man, it's like, I, just by watching Archie in the office, I, I learned how to balloon stories. You know, it's, it's, it's sort of like this. I'm like, oh, wow, I didn't think of that. And he says, well, it's just, you know, go with what feels right. <laughs> just like, okay, I'm going to follow I'm gonna follow you around and, and try to do, do this the right way. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, uh, of others who seem to have had you know, a very positive impact and people generally look back on them very fondly, um, do you have any particular um, Grunewald stories? Because, I mean, I'm always interested in those. I mean, he obviously passed away so long ago, but he had such an impression on yes. a very a certain period of Marvel. And, you know, a lot of the kind of the continuity loving, I feel like, comes from, you know, this kind of uh, Grunewald thinking. Yeah, I, Mark, Mark had this, this incredible mind for patterns and putting things together that uh, I always appreciated. I first met Mark when he was doing his own fanzine. He came up with the, the omniversal theory <laughs> of, of comics, you know, and how everything fits into this huge mosaic, you know, and yeah, there are alternate realities and those things take place over there and this, these things take place in the past. But th- this sort, sort of huge 
mythological tapestry of how everything fit together. You know, he had one for Marvel. He had one for DC, too. <laughs> but DCs kept changing all the time, so it was hard to keep her track of. But uh, Mark was great. And, and he hysterically funny. He, he would just do these stunts that are amazing. I remember one time after I moved upstate and uh, came back in, into the city to deliver some stuff and, and for a conference, and I walked in, and this was when, when Mike Carlin was was uh, was uh, Mark's assistant, and, and I, I walked in the door of the new offices, and he put their desks up on risers. They went out and, and actually went to a lumber yard and, and bought uh, mater- materials and came in one weekend <laughs> and built risers and, and, uh, and, and with their desks up so that when you walked in, <laughs> you were you were sort of at, at face level with the edge of their desks and you looked up <laughs> and I just broke up laughing and I, was just, I said, doesn't it warm up there? And they're going, yeah, a little bit. That's why we have fans. <laughs> okay. It does seem like he. I, 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 I've, I've heard those stories that like, yeah, he's such a, a joker and was willing to kind of go go a far a long way to make a joke. Yeah, Mark and uh, Mike Carlin and Elliot Brown, uh, who was you know, the the master of the stat room uh, technical drawing put together a uh, comedy series that was on like cable access in Manhattan for a while called Cheap Laughs. And it was just, I, I saw some, but it's just hysterically funny. You know, I'm going, how did you find time to do this and write comics and be an editor? And I said, oh, it fits together. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, we were all, all much younger then. So, you know, it's like, uh, get by on three hours of sleep? Sure, no problem. <laughs> um, one thing I am curious about, uh, I'm always curious about, you know, kind of this, you know, that the 80s period at Marvel especially, you know, what were your personal interactions with Jim Shooter when he kind of came in, and how did you view him when he first arrived at Marvel? Well, first, I had to, to, to look up because Jim was very tall. <laughs> Jim is 6'7", and, uh, or as he liked to refer to it, 5'19". But, uh, yeah, I was, yeah, Jim, uh, Jim was hired just a, a couple of weeks after I started there. It was like, uh, Chris Claremont had been uh, the assistant editor. There was like, the, the office that later officially became called editor-in-chief, which is what it was, was uh, uh, then maintained by, uh, Marv Wolfman was then the editor, and it was he was charge of all the color line and, and there was another editor for the black and white magazines mm. but the uh, and uh, Chris had been I don't know if, I can't remember if the title was assistant editor or associate editor but anyway he, he was like next in command and, and did stuff and then there were a bunch of little assistant editors which I became one and Chris was had just recently started doing this little magazine uh, magazine called X-Men. I don't know what happened to that, but anyway, uh, evidently was taking up more of his time and he was he was writing uh, Iron Fist and a couple of other projects. I can't remember 
what they were right now. But he was becoming busy as a writer, and so he decided to go off staff. And we needed to find someone to replace him, and so Jim was hired. Jim was getting back in, into comics at the time. He was finishing up a few, last few Legion of Superhero stories for DC and was hired on staff at Marvel. And Jim and I sort of bonded because we were the new kids. Hmm. Like I, I was there like in, uh, you know like two weeks earlier than he was, you know. And so you know we'd get together after dinner, after dinner, after after work for dinner and uh, chew the fat. And, and I, I had remembered reading his Legion of Superhero stories in the sixties. You know, and, and we're shocked to discover that he was a year younger than I was, <laughs> almost exactly a year younger. And, yeah, I would, we would talk about some of the old stories, and he'd tell me stories about Mort Weisinger, which would curl your hair. And uh, I said, that there was this one story I was never able to find. And, I, and I, I've been looking for through back issues. You know, it's so hard to find some of these. And he says, well, what was it about? You're talking. And I said, well, when you did this issue with, with Mordrew, and they had the flashback to their first encounter with him, you know, and I've been looking for that first encounter all the, all these years, and, and he said, oh, I made that up. <laughs> but you made it up? And he says, yeah, yeah the, the story that you read was really the first Mordrew story. I just established in the flashback that they'd met him before. And going, I've been looking years for that story. And he says, <laughs> Sorry, the flashback is all there is. So, <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, so years later, when I when I wound up uh, actually working on uh, Legion of Superheroes for DC, I wrote the first Mordrew story. <laughs> I had to meet him for the first time. It's a slightly different, re- slightly different reality, slightly you know refried version of the Legion. But I'm going. Well, I'll just write that first story. And make sure it ends with the flashback did. Well, that's funny. <laughs> Thanks, Jim. When uh, so you guys are like the new kids, which is kind of funny because obviously like Jim had been in the industry for a while. But well, what was it like again? Oh, yeah. You guys coming at Marvel together, and then again he proceeds up the ranks and then ends up becoming editor in chief. What was that like to kind of see you know your your fellow compatriot who kind of came in with you accede to the top job? I was happy with it because he had good ideas. I mean, it was one of these things where, I think we might have discussed this this last time, but you know, when, when we think of, of the early Marvel age of, of, of comics with Stan and Jack and Ditko and Don Heck and all these guys, you look back at it and it was really only about a dozen titles mm-hmm. because at the time Marvel was distributed by, uh, I think it was Independent Distributors, which was actually a division of DC. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, Martin Goodman, who owned uh, Marvel and before that Atlas and Timely, same company really, just different names, had uh, gone with a new distributor uh, in the late 50s, and that distributor immediately went out of business. Mm. So Martin, Martin was always like, doing lots of comics. You know, if Westerns were hot, he'd, you know, say, he'd, he'd publish 10 Westerns, you know, and 
if or, or twenty westerns. You know, and if, if uh, funny animals were hot, he'd do twenty funny animals. You know, so he. Martin was always doing about thirty or forty books a month, and you know, part of his his whole philosophy is, if it's hot, flood the market with it. So all I can see is mine. And so, when he uh, you know, lost his distributor and was looking for another one, like independent, he said, you know, through DC through independent, said, okay, we'll distribute your books, but you can have just ten books a month. So, you know, they, first they had all this inventory they had to burn off mm. through, through their uh, the titles. And when Stan and Jack started doing like, the Fantastic Four, and then, and then Stan and, and Steve did uh, Spider-Man, and others, whenever they came up with a new title, they would have to drop an old title. So I, f- I forget what they dropped for uh, to do the Fantastic Four. But I, th- I think that they dropped one of their Western titles to do the Hulk. Mm. And they, they dropped you know, some mystery titles to Spider-Man. And that was the way it was up until like the late 60s. So I think, I think they originally distributed just 10 books a month. And after a while, they managed to, to worm the way up to like 12 books a month. But that's why when you have... Uh, Iron Man, Captain Strange Tales became, yeah, you know, Nick Fury, Agent of Shield, and Doctor Strange. What we called the split books. It was half one feature, half another, because they could have only so many titles a month. And that's why you you could tell when Marvel finally broke away from that deal and got a new distributor in the late 60s because suddenly twice as many titles. Mm-hmm. But in the early days, you know, like 10 or 12 books a month. You know, enough that Jack Kirby could draw like half of them and Stan could script most of them you know, and, the, and you know, Steve Ditko and Don Heck and maybe a couple of other guys wound up doing all the rest. I was always fascinated by the history of that. DC, without realizing it, and certainly without meaning to, accidentally created this buffer that gave birth to their greatest competitor. <laughs> You know, Martin Goodman was always, I had this little little hole-in-the-wall operation where, where he was, you know, flooding the market with dozens and dozens of titles. Now, suddenly reined into just 10 or 12 titles, it became an incubator, basically, for the whole Marvel Universe. So, but anyway, that's, that's sort of a roundabout history way of getting back to your question. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is, you know, how things had changed. You know, back in the 60s, you know, birth of the Marvel Universe, 10 or 12 titles. Well, by the, by the late 70s, it was like, I don't know, 40 or 50 titles. It was something ridiculous. <laughs> Just a you know, this huge amount of, of, of uh, stories being published every month. And Jim realized 
it was humanly impossible for one person to edit all of those. It's just, it was too much. So he said, you know, he was offered the position. He said, to do this right, I have to be editor in chief and there have to be editors underneath me editing subsets of these. And to his surprise and our surprise, they said, yeah, okay, fine. <laughs> and we changed the whole setup. And because uh, uh, initially, of course, there were still a number of writer editors by contract were the editor of, the, of their own material. You have Roy Thomas on the Conan stories and, mm. and the Invaders and a few others. And, uh, you know, um, Marv Wolfman was still a writer editor and Archie had become one. Uh, mainly doing Star Wars and a few other special uh, series. And uh, Bob Hall was hired to edit what we were thought of as, as the Defenders wing of the Marvel Universe, which was Defenders and Hulk and Doctor Strange and, and some related titles there. And, and, and Jim hired me to edit the Avengers wing of the Marvel Universe, which Avengers, Cap, Iron Man, yeah, and and some other related uh, series, uh, and even a few that weren't related. But we, you know, we divided them up. You take this one, I'll take that one. You take this one, I'll take that one. Fine. Mm -hmm. And so overnight, I went from being an assistant editor to being an editor, uh, sort of overseeing, you know, a dozen books or more a month. Basically, what Stan was doing, <laughs> except I had more people. Work with, I, and I didn't have Jack Kirby, darn it, to, uh, to to produce these things, so I could sit back and go, yeah, very good, nice. <laughs> so, what? what? Oh, and everything was late. Every, yeah. every, every almost every book w was late, and uh, the number one assignment is to make them not late. Make them as good as you can, but make them not late. And it took several months, but we finally were not late. And, and then we could devote more time to, to making the stories better. Hmm. Which was really job one. What was, I mean, I, I can only imagine what, I mean, what a massive sea change that would have been, obviously, from what had uh, kind of been before it. And again, this, you know, tightening of the ship to make sure the books are on time, which makes sense. I mean, in any business, you want to make sure things are timely. Well, especially since, I mean, producing that many titles, uh, you have to have uh, your contracting for so much press time right off the bat, you know, and those presses need to be running all its time. And if a book is late, the press isn't running and they have to reset things for something else, then there's a delay that incurs a penalty. Hmm. So it's possible if you're late enough to actually lose money producing things. So it's, it's really important. Plus, people, if a book is supposed to be coming out monthly, Readers really want to read it every month. Mm. You know, they, uh, they're disappointed if it's not there, and who can blame them? You know, it's like, oh, this story is continued next month. Where is it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it needs to be there. So, uh, 
you know, and of course, and the business has changed a little over the years with uh, with the change in distribution and more things uh, through exclusively through comics shops and almost exclusively through comic shops these days because there are very few newsstands left. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that there's still people who subscribe through various services to get the comics shipped to them. And, you know, there's, you know, the online presence now where you can get your comics digitally. Uh, I don't know how big that is just yet because it's still relatively new. Mm-hmm. But that was an option that wasn't available in the 70s. No. The internet wasn't available in the 70s. <laughs> I, well, I mean, as you said, even making long-distance calls was, was expensive. <laughs> oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, now I have a, a, a package deal where I have unlimited long-distance uh, service you know, throughout the, the continental United States. I can call anywhere, anytime, and I paid one flat fee. So it's like, wow, that's amazing. And now I almost never make phone calls anymore. So go figure. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, so I have a question. Yeah. <laughs> now I email people. Yeah. When, um, like, relatively early on in your writing career, so, I mean, obviously you and John Byrne, um, you know, your paths crossed numerous times, but I'm curious about, I mean, obviously it's such a beloved era when you and, and John collaborate on Captain America and it's relatively short but it's extremely beloved and it's been reprinted a lot um, how can you speak to you know like why why do you think you guys gelled so well together and unfortunately why couldn't we have more of it yeah. <laughs> well you know I, I always I always like to say that, that one of the, the major strengths uh, of the, the Captain America stories that John and I did was we weren't on the book long enough to stink. <laughs> uh, you, you laugh, but people say, oh, are they still here? You know, mm-hmm. it, was, it was like, yeah, uh, and I, I forget who pointed this out to me. I think it was like, uh, Lynn Wien and Bernie Wrightson did like nine or ten issues of Swamp Thing. It was, we, we were in an issue of doing the same number of issues that they'd done on, on, on Swamp Thing, and I'm going, well, everyone everyone really loves those books because there, there were there were only so many, so they've you know it's a precious few. I mean, and and I would have liked to continue doing cat, but it was just like things were getting you know, getting wacky schedule wise, hmm. and uh, it was just like uh, let's quit while we're ahead, you know, while we still enjoy doing this. But yeah, it could be. That, that only partially answers your question, I suppose. But John and I, you know, from our fanzine days, first just corresponding, uh, because, you know, it, like, I was in the Midwest, and he was up in Alberta somewhere, <laughs> in the frozen north. So, wrote a lot of letters back and forth. You know, the occasional long-distance phone call, but they were really expensive then. Uh, and, of course, the wonderful thing, once I was working on staff at Marvel... And John was already working for Marvel, you know, initially on Iron Fist and, and then Team Up and, and eventually the X-Men. Uh, once once I was at Marvel, I could call him on Marvel's dime. <laughs> what a great deal. And when we were working together, uh, as when I was his editor, you know, it's like, oh, I'll call him up. You know, it says, have you gotten this yet? Yeah, thanks. Okay, good. 
oh, what's new? <laughs> and, uh, you know, Marvel had a big long distance phone ball bill anyway. They didn't care. Fine. <laughs> so, uh, so we kept trying. It was, and, and then later, when uh, when I, I was freelancing, we were working together on projects. You know, it was like, you know, for, for some of your your listeners who may not realize this, when you're a writer uh, and you're using the phone a lot for you know, to communicate with an artist, that's deductible. <laughs> so I had this, you know, great deduction every year from uh, from long distance calls. That's funny. When when you and J- and John worked on Captain America, obviously it's a, it's a very beloved mm-hmm. run, as I said, and maybe maybe it is because it's nice and short and sweet and it's so good. And then mm-hmm. again, it leaves you wanting wanting more. Um, what was it like creating a new version of Union Jack? Well, that was fun. That was that was great fun because uh, the, the the Union Jack story actually grew out of a story that John had wanted had suggested when he was uh, artist on. Uh, the Avengers, that you know, because we were coming up with various ideas, and he came up with a story where the, the Avengers, you know, meet the remnants of the invaders, and, and things go on. And we never got around to doing that. And when we were working on Captain America, I said, "Remember your invaders story idea?" He said, "Yeah." I says, "That would actually work." better as a Captain America story because if you know you know oh Baron Blood is, is loose well, we have what's left of the invaders and the Avengers yeah I think they'll beat him you know, <laughs> Captain America on his own with, with maybe an incredibly old Union Jack that's an, a more interesting story so uh, we, we put that together we came up and, and finagled it around and, and uh turned it into a cap story and, and, it, and, it, and it, I do, do think it worked and we, we John and I were both big fans of Frank Robbins you know from you know, early stuff he'd, he'd done at DC he had this great newspaper distributed for years and years called Johnny Hazard and we really really loved uh, Frank Robbins and so we we really, you know, sort of our our ash letter to, uh, to to Frank Robbins to to come up with a a, a new younger Union Jack to to ca- sort of carry on. And I guess he's turned up now and again stories. So yeah, he, something he, I guess we. He continues to be popular. He does definitely does has shown up numerous of times, and it's always fun to see him. And yeah, I mean, obviously that's a testament to the character you guys created. That it was a nice update on the Union Jack concept using someone of you know a different yeah. status and what that would look like. Well, it, it's, it's nice to be thanked, but but uh, really, Roy Thomas and, and Frank Robbins out there who put the thing together in the first place. Hmm. You just sort of feel like okay, here's the new, the new guy. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm curious about if there were, when you guys were doing that run and you have the Baron Blood story and you have uh, the decapitation of Baron Blood, was there any pushback from Marvel or the Comics Code Authority at that time? No. Uh, not really, I will. For one thing, even though it was obviously what was going on, we were very coy about showing it. You mm-hmm. know, it's like, what happened? 
Captain America decapitated the vampire with his, with his shield. Okay. Did you really see it? Well, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what happened? Yeah. So there's nothing really awful that you see. Really? No. Okay. So, you know, it was like, it, it was possible to to do that under the comics code. And, and Marvel said, yeah, fine. And, uh... It, it was effective. <laughs> uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, and in and around this period, when you're like you're working on Cap, you're uh, you're also doing a spectacular Spider-Man, and then you're doing Doctor Strange. I'm curious what it's like to balance a workload like that when you have. I mean, maybe this is a good thing that you're dealing with such different genres at the same time. Oh yeah, that 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 keeps things interesting. Yeah, because. Spider-Man was a very different character for, from Captain America. Yeah, they're both nominally superheroes, but very different superheroes. Uh, and yeah, you wouldn't have Cap, you know, jumping around wise cap, cracking the way that Spider-Man does. You know, it's just a completely different strip. He has a completely different lifestyle. He has a completely different background. And, and he, he's the peak of human perfection, whereas Spider-Man has all these wonderful, weird powers. And then you've got Doctor Strange, which isn't really a superhero at all. It, it, it's it, it's a supernatural book. I mean, there's superhero trappings, but it, it's it's a very very different series. And you know, going from one to another to the third and back again, that does help keep you fresh because you're doing something different in every series. I remember getting a letter when I uh, first started writing. The Avengers. I was still running Spider-Man at the time, and I had a letter from someone who was confused and I said, "Well, you know, I really like these stories, but they're nothing like your Spider-Man stories." And I'm going, "Well, yeah, <laughs> that would be wrong." <laughs> Spider-Man, Spider-Man is is a series about this young guy with these weird powers who's trying to figure out what he's doing with his life, and the Avengers is. A, a team of accomplished superheroes banding together to fight menaces that are too big for any one of them. Completely different series. They shouldn't read anything like each other. <laughs> <laughs> if, if, they, if they did, I'd be screwing up. Yeah. <laughs> So, a, a question: When you're when you're draw, when you're um, writing Doctor Strange, I'm curious what what was your collaborative process like with Marshall Rogers? Oh, that was that was big fun because we actually the first story that Marshall did, I actually plotted for for Gene Colan to draw. Oh, because because uh, well, Frank Miller was supposed to to be the artist on. Uh, Doctor Strange, but he was uh, tied up with proposals for for a, a James Bond book at the time, which eventually wound up being done by someone else. Hmm. So that didn't happen. And at uh, that time, two things happened in that uh, Frank started writing Daredevil as well as drawing it, and Daredevil went monthly. So suddenly he was doing two jobs twice as often. <laughs> so that, that so that made him busy. And he was always hoping to get far enough ahead that he could come back and do Doctor Strange, but didn't work out. 
So we'd gotten uh, Gene Coleman to come back and do an issue of Doctor Strange, and the thought at first was that he'd be doing two or three issues. So with the, the second issue I'd plotted, I said, Gene was the first artist on Brother Voodoo. We'll have Brother Voodoo in here. Well, Gene wound up not doing it. But uh, Al Milgram had gotten Marshall Rogers. You know, the thing is, Marshall's interested in some Doctor Strange stories. We'll see how this works out. And, you know, I'm going, well, I hope he likes drawing Doctor, uh, Doctor Strange and Brother Voodoo because <laughs> that's what the story is about. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Marshall picked it up, did a great job in the thing, and he, he was all gung-ho to do, you know, another five issues, so we do the six issues together. And I said, you got some ideas? You want to do some stuff? What would you like to draw? And, and Marshall said, oh, I got some ideas. And he came in, he had this raft of, of, of uh, you know, yellow pad paper, you know, like legal size paper, and all these crazy notes, you know, how about if we do this? How about, how about if we do a time travel story? How about if we, and I'm going, this is cool. If we did all this stuff, it's about three years worth of stories. But I, th- I think I think the heart of this here can be a good story. So and Marshall, you think so? Yeah, let's let's, let's try. So I put the whole thing. We already introduced uh, a new uh, female love interest for Doc into the story with with Morgana Blessing, and. Marshall had, had one of his ideas was, you know, this sort of uh, past lives story where Doc is trying to attract him and says, okay, we'll use this character here and we'll do this. And it all just fell together and it was it was great fun. You know, Marshall, you know, Marshall deserves at least, at least half of the credit for, for the, uh, the story ideas behind it stuff because he's just like as, as I said you know, if, if I still had those <laughs> you could probably do a couple more years worth of Doctor Strange just some, some of the crazy ideas in there it's really great to hear, though, just how invested and, and interested he was in doing that project, and and, and being, and especially in the fluidity of a character like Doctor Strange, where you can kind of go everywhere and anywhere. Yeah, yeah, and we we tried to do you know some different stuff with Doctor Strange. You know, I'm sure it's a supernatural series, but you can get too tied up in mysticism uh, to the point where there's no reality left anymore. So we had like Doc doing some physical stuff, some down-to-earth stuff, as well uh, as the, the, the supernatural and mystical stuff. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, I used to tell people, it's like, well, if everyone in the series has superpowers, then superpowers aren't as important. Hmm. <laughs> it's like, if everyone is a crazy mystic in a story, there is no one normal to to sit there and go, gosh, wow. <laughs> Very true. Yeah, it is something I tried to point out to, to to Chris Claremont when I was his editor on X Men. I'm going, if everyone's a mutant, what's this book about? <laughs> you know, someone someone normal would show up and it would, it would turn out, oh, he's a mutant too. Really, all of them? <laughs> is there anyone in this book who isn't a mutant? 
That's a good point, actually. Yeah. So I'm curious. I'm, My powers, I'm good with languages. That's not a power. <laughs> that's a talent. <laughs> um, switching gears for a moment, going back to Spider-Man. So when you start writing Amazing Spider-Man, I'm curious... Uh, first, what led you to kind of bring back Black Cat, who hadn't been seen, I guess, in almost two years at that point? Really two years? I guess it was. Uh, or close to it. Uh, I just thought she was a great, uh, great, potentially great character and a great design. And you know, I looked at him going, oh, this character's too good to waste. You know, it's like, oh, she's crazy. Oh, is, is every Spider-Man villain crazy? <laughs> you know? Well, let's, let's have one, one who's not crazy. And, and I thought that the Black Cat had great potential to be sort of something that, that Spider-Man didn't really have that much of, which was a femme fatale. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, a a, a, a dragon lady or or a uh, or, or a sans serif. You know, I was like, I've been reading a lot of Will Eisner's old uh, spirit stories at the time, and I'm going, you know, would be great if. You know, develop the cat into sort of this, this anti-hero who's playing both sides of the fence. And Spider-Man's attracted to her, but he's going like, that's, you really can't do that. <laughs> you gotta go straight, you, you, you can't, he says, you, you, can't just, you can't keep robbing people. And she says, well, how about if I rob only bad people? Says, no, 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 it's, it's still robbery, you know, it's, 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 I, got, I got a problem with that. And the the other little wrinkle I, I threw in was that like she's attracted to to, to Spider Man, but doesn't really want to see under the mask. You know, she's affected the whole idea of Spider Man. In fact, when I did the story called Date Dreamers, uh, she's having this fantasy where where, where Spider Man finally says, "Okay, let's go," and they go on this great sort of you know, to catch a thief uh, spy adventure, and. He pulls off his mask and it's Cary Grant. <laughs> That's her fantasy. That's funny. <laughs> when I, I suppose today it would be Clooney, Clooney or, or mm-hmm. you know Bad Pitt or somebody. But. Yeah. One thing I um, always really liked about that initial Black Hat story you did in Amazing um, was how you used Jean DeWolf. Um, I mean, she was such an interesting character, and I just liked how you kind of had her, you know, kind of bounce off Spider-Man. And obviously that's an interesting two-parter, too, because of how Spider-Man is impacted by the end and how he's kind of down and out and how you have Jean kind of there. So I always really liked how their interplay worked. And shes I don't think we really have a character who really brings that to Spider-Man these days. Yeah, it's, I, I always liked Jane DeWolf. I think I believe it was I believe it was uh, Bill Mantlo who initially introduced her. I think so. To uh, into like in Spectacular or Marvel Team of one, one of the, the the books that he was writing with Spider Man. And at, at the time, it was sort of gutsy because you know she was uh, a captain of police in the NYPD. You know, and people were going, "Ah, that's crazy! There aren't any women." Yeah. You know, captains in NYPD and within about two or three years there was you know sort of going well ahead of the curve I don't think that's a bad thing at all nope <laughs> and, uh, and and Bill had developed this really interesting character and I'm going wow I like that we need to have her in here and one of the I, here's I, I want to pause here for a minute 
one of the things that I tried to develop when I was working on Spider-Man is that Spider-Man's all over the place. You know, one moment he's in Queens, and he's in Brooklyn, he's in Manhattan, he's in the Bronx, whatever. And in New York City, there are police precincts, and he wouldn't be meeting the same cops all over town. <laughs> you know, if, if something big was, was going down, they had to, to, to haul in people from, from other precincts. Sure, big emergency or something. But, okay, if he's in Midtown, he's going to meet these cops. If he's over here, he's going to meet these cops. And he's going to get along with some of them. He's not going to get along with some of them. And, yeah, it was, it was neat playing him off of different yeah, detectives and, and patrolmen in different precincts. It's such an interesting concept. I hadn't really, thought, I hadn't even thought of that. But you're absolutely right. Like he's zipping around. He wouldn't necessarily. I mean, I mean, always... New York City. It's a big place. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, moving a little bit forward, I have a question about uh, not just the the original kind of uh, nothing could stop the Juggernaut story, but also what was it like to come back? You know, what twenty something years later and do a sequel to that story. That was that was fun. That was great fun, and I have to thank Steve Wacker for that because Stephen had asked me to to sort of you know, play designated hitter filling him occasionally here and there for, for the for the uh, Spider-Man consortium there of writers and uh, he called me up one time and he said he said you want to do a multi-parter and I said yeah sure why not and, and anything in particular you're looking for and he says well you can completely ignore this if you want to but as I was shaving this morning, <laughs> you know, a title a, a title occurred to me. And I'm going, I says, that's usually where the best titles come from. What is it? And this is something can stop the juggernaut. This is I'm just throwing it out there. You don't have to use it. I'm going, no, I like that. Because we've already done nothing can stop the juggernaut. How about if we do something? That, and then I sit down going, okay, what can stop the juggernaut? <laughs> His main power is you can't stop him. So I need, some, I need something just incredibly cosmic to stop the juggernaut you know and like the juggernaut's been stopped and Spider-Man's going whoa <laughs> <laughs> who did this you know so we have a little mystery to begin with and, and we introduce who, who the force is and, and then and, and it, was, it was just great fun and it, it, it also enabled me to tell the story of what had happened after Spider-Man's initial encounter with uh, with the juggernaut mm-hmm. uh, done with, with uh, JR because I have this habit of whenever I, I do a story and you know the villain is dealt with in whatever fashion I usually have something in the back of my head about what the next story is okay if this guy is sent to prison here's how it gets out if, if this guy is seemingly killed, here's how he escapes the death trap. And with with Juggernaut, I had the idea in mind of how he was going to get out of the foundation of that building. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do that next year as an Avengers Annual or something, mm. <laughs> where you know they figured out where he, they figured out where he's going to uh, come out, and when he comes out, the Avengers are there to stop him or some such, and. Before I could do that, uh, Chris and, and by that point, uh, John Romita 
Jr. were working on, on X-Men, and they brought the Juggernaut back, and he was just back. Mm. I'm going, well, how, how did he get here? And I says, oh, he's just back. Well, no, see, he, he was stuck at the bottom of the foundation, <laughs> 40 <laughs> feet down in concrete. Yeah, you, know, you, you threw away a great story. You could have, you could have done this great story about how he got out, and, and how he didn't. So when I did something and stopped the juggernaut, in flashback, I revealed how he got out. That's awesome. So there was that. That was fun. <laughs> it's interesting that you get to. Plus, it was great working with Lee Weeks. Oh yeah, I mean Lee is amazing. Yeah, yeah. I just wish he was faster. <laughs> oh really? When when you do that story, like again. It's, so, it's interesting to work in a medium where eventually you can kind of come back to something like that. And even though it's been 20 years, you can. It's just like with your um, your Avengers one shot from last year, where you can kind of pick up where you were and tell something that kind of seamlessly fits in, or at least explains something that happened before. And that's obviously what you did with your Avengers book. Yeah, that's that's what I've and I've been very lucky in that occasionally someone asks me to revisit something, and I'll look at them going. Oh, no one's messed with this. You know, I, <laughs> I, I can jump in and do another story here. That'll be great. <laughs> it's always been fun. Uh, I, I've always been wanted to ask, what is it about the vulture which has seemed to capture your attention? Because, you, you know, you've definitely spent time with the character and your different Spider-Man uh, issues. So what is it about the vulture that captures you? I, I love, I've always loved the vulture. I, I think it was because one of the very earliest Spider-Man stories I read was a, a Marvel Tales reprint of the story from Amazing Spider-Man. I think it was number seven, was the Return of the Vulture, and you know it was like this is wonderful Lee Ditko tour de force of Spider-Man and the Vulture fighting within the Daily Bugle building. You know, down by the presses and up around the up through the the, the corridors and down there, and it was it always stuck with me and I always liked whenever the vulture showed up that I, I always thought in my mind the vulture was the ultimate Spider-Man villain you know ring on fine you know <laughs> Dr. Octopus great but but the vulture the vulture the vulture versus Spider-Man is old age and cunning versus youth and enthusiasm. Hmm. You know, they're, 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 they're oil and water. You know, they're just, you know, just a, a wonderful juxtaposition and, and a wonderful contrast in the way these guys go about each other. And it's, and, and the great thing with the Vulture, you know, I, I think I used it two or three times when I was writing Spider-Man, is, but, but the last story, I was looking back over his stuff, and I was like, what haven't I done with the vulture? What, what, I love it, this guy. And I realized the vulture didn't have an origin. <laughs> he just showed up one day, you know, robbing jewelry stores and, and banging some things. And then, you know, Spider-Man took him away, and he came back, and they fought again. He comes back, he does this, Spider-Man stops him, finds some new way to stop him. And I'm going, we have no idea how he came up with that. He, he just appeared, full-blown. And so I go, 
cool. I'm going to make an origin for it. <laughs> and that was great fun. Now, in in your Amazing Spider-Man run, you also obviously introduced in your in one of your annuals, Monica Rambeau. What was the process of creating this character? Uh, that was <clears throat> that was very involved. Uh, the uh, of course, you know, everyone thought of of, of Marvel as Captain Marvel, and uh, that story was his story was coming to an end in the first. You know, Marvel graphic novel. They uh, they figured you know the first Marvel graphic novel should be some really big deal, and uh, Jim Starlin was given uh, carte blanche to to you know do the final story of the death of Captain Marvel, and this was in the works for some time, and we knew that <coughs> we knew that. Uh, in the office that Captain Marvel was going to die in the, in the first graphic novel. Here's the title of death of Captain Marvel. But, uh, and we, we also knew that we'd eventually be doing a new Captain Marvel just to maintain the trademark over, over the, over the uh, title and any subsequent characters. Because Marvel Comics, by rights, ought to own Captain Marvel. <laughs> just, yeah. I don't make the rules, but... <laughs> And so, a, a number of us uh, in the office were you know, kicking around ideas. What could we do? What could we do that would uh, you know, be, be? We we wanted something interesting, and we wanted a, a new Captain Marvel that was different from Marvel. Because otherwise, you know, what's the point? I mean, someone suggested, you know, well, how about you know, Rick Jones, who'd been sort of the doppelganger sidekick character in, in, in uh, a lot of the Captain Marvel stories. how about if if he becomes the new Captain Marvel eh, that's too derivative you know it's, it's too obvious so <clears throat> I, I was sitting around trying to come up with an idea and I thought well maybe you know energy powers because they, you know they, they, in the golden age of comics Captain Marvel you know would appear in a lightning bolt well, how about if she? How about how if the new Captain Marvel is the lightning bolt? And so I'm fiddling around with what my my rudimentary knowledge of, of science and uh, came up with uh, was coming up with these powers. And it was my wife who pointed out that you know Captain Marvel is not a gender specific name. Could be a woman. And I thought, no, why not? And for some reason, I remembered this uh, story from uh, the uh, mid-60s, the civil rights uh, movement. And there was a, a, a black comedian, and I think it was Dick Gregory, but I've never been able to track down the routine. I've used Google and gotten lost a couple of times trying to try, track this down. Why didn't Godfrey Cambridge... I, but it seems to me it was Dick Gregory. At any rate, black comedian of the mid-60s, and had a routine about a, you know, Southern white supremacist who has a near-death experience, you know, and manages to pull through, and sitting in his hospital bed, he looks all wide-eyed, and says, I saw a God. 
Yeah, what's God like? Well, for one thing, she's black and she's pissed. <laughs> and I thought, okay. <laughs> what a great, you know, why can't Catherine Rovley be a black woman? No reason, no reason she shouldn't. So, uh, and I thought, okay, what can I, what can I do to, to make this character interesting? And I wanted an exotic locale for her to be from. And I don't know why I thought of, of New Orleans, uh, but it's sort of a cosmopolitan city. A lot of people say it's as European as it is American. And uh, I, I did just enough research to hopefully make it believable she was from New Orleans. And uh, came up with, with the... Uh, came up with Monica Rambeau and uh, I don't remember how I came up with the name <laughs> I, I think I, I think the, the, the Rambo uh, came from, from uh, the Stallone movies mm. you know but I'll spell it you know in, in, a, in a French fashion here which is fitting and, and New Orleans Nor- uh, yeah for New Orleans and I, I think I might I might have just I, I, I don't know if, if I, I have a baby book now of names and what they mean, uh, but at the time I may have just you know, like flipped through a, a phone book you know, and looking for interesting first names. And, uh, but that, that's how Monica Rambo came to be. And when, once I'd come up with, with, with the character and my editors liked the idea, and the idea was, was that we'd introduce a new Captain Marvel and she'd become an Avenger. So, I had an, uh, a, a Spider-Man annual coming up, and I said, well, how about if we introduce her in this annual, and then she can go on to be in the Avengers. <clears throat> you know, and if she's popular, maybe I'll get to do a Captain Marvel series, who knows? And so everyone says, yeah, it's fine. And J.R. came up with a great design for the costume. You know, I had some, some vague suggestions, maybe she has a cape of some sort, you know, whatever. And... He came up with it, and you know, his father did the inks and the thing, so everyone looked great, and she looked gorgeous. And it was, was, I I can't remember exactly how long it was after I uh, wrote the annual, that I wound up becoming the writer of the Avengers. So I I write the next chapter as well. hadn't hadn't uh, hadn't uh, suspected that that would be the case when I came up with the, with the character, but that's what happened. So there you go. It's and interesting. unfortunately, I was busy writing the Avengers. I never did get to do a Captain Marvel series. <laughs> oh well. It's uh, it's interesting looking at the cover dates. Actually, that the uh, the annual was cover dated December nineteen eighty two, and that Avengers issue where she shows up is January eighty three. So it's like no time at all had elapsed. Yeah, well, we th- there was more time for me because the annuals ideally, and in this case, did have a slightly longer lead time. Hmm. So it, I was. It was the it was uh, the Avengers as a January cover date. You said yes. Okay, I was I was probably I was probably uh, thinking up the the animal and the character. You know, maybe seven or eight months before. 
So that, that sounds right anyway. I, I, I don't think my, my records go back that far, but uh, I don't think they go back much below, uh, before the early 90s. But anyway, that's... Uh, <laughs> So I'm curious, when you take over Avengers, so it's interesting to kind of look at the, both the beginning and near the end of your run that you use the Masters of Evil in very different ways and iterations. Uh, was that kind of intentional that you would kind of bring them back? Yeah, the, I, I used the, the Masters a couple of times. And one of the, one of the, of the, the challenges in writing the Avengers is... They're so powerful. You have to have a really powerful adversary for them to face. And the Avengers don't have that many uh, really powerful uh, enemies of their own. I mean, you know, Ultron, and there's Kang, and there's who else? Gorak. Uh, been a pretty definite ending in his story. And the Masters of Evil, great name, gets in the bad guys. They've had a lot of different incarnations over the years. And I used them early on in the, in the, uh, in my first few months of the Avengers helping bring it into the uh, uh, the Trial of Yellow Jacket storyline. But I like the idea of the Masters as sort of the big anti-Avengers force that the Avengers has, has to fight. And it occurred to me that villains really ought to fight dirty. Hmm. You know, the, 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 heroes, the heroes have standards and responsibilities but the villains they can fight dirty so I thought instead of having like five or six villains to fight five or six Avengers how about if if like Baron Zemo puts together an army (laughs) you know you know just a dozen or more really tough super villains you know and and a lot of them uh, I, I sort of front-loaded it with, like, really big Jack Kirby characters. You know, like the Wrecking Crew, and, and Mr. Hyde, and Goliath, and all these guys who are big, mean, physical characters. And I threw in some energy characters with, like, like Blackout and, and Moonstone, and, and, you know, but, yeah, had their own, you know... Munitions Master and Fixer for a a time in the story at least had the Absorbing Man in Titania Mm -hmm. really big tough characters hard to beat I'm going okay okay Avengers try to survive (laughs) and I was always really happy with the way that story came out I mean, I think most people are. Uh, it's usually, you know, number one near the top of the list of the best Avengers stories. So obviously, it really struck a chord with people, and they loved, uh, you know, the the brutality of the villains, but also, you know, the struggle that the heroes had to go through as well. And it's it's you know, it's very fondly from remembered for for good reason. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, 
I mean, it, it, it's hard to come up with a threat when you've got Hercules on your team. So I figured if I've got, yeah, Mr. Hyde and the Wrecking Crew and Goliath and, you know, just just wailing on this guy. You know, it's like, how about if I have like five or six big Kirby guys to fight one Kirby guy? <laughs> yeah, that might work. A, a, a thing I'm curious about is obviously like years later, Kurt Busiek would kind of mine Under Siege for characters that he would include in Thunderbolts. Have you ever talked to Kurt about that? Obviously, you guys have worked on projects together. Has that ever come up about how much of the DNA of his Thunderbolts lies in your run? Yeah, well, I, I, I was tickled by it myself. <laughs> when he, he first started telling me about it, he says, we've got these new heroes. Yeah, yeah, okay. And here's the secret. They're really villains. Oh, that's clever. You know, and, and, and this is basically it's like you know, you know, what if the masters of evil, you know, masqueraded as, as heroes and, and got away with it for a while? I said, I would buy that comic, <laughs> and people did. For sure, it, helped it, was. it was really well well written and well drawn. <laughs> but I'm going, that's a great idea. I want to see that. Um, what I mean, I, 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 you've probably mentioned this before, but what kind of led to uh, this is two different questions wrapped into one. But what kind of led to your departure from both uh, Spider-Man and from the Avengers? Well, Spider-Man, it's a little complicated in that Danny Fingeroth had just come on as as the editor. And I'd had a, a long working relationship with, with uh, Tom DeFalco. We got along great, and everyone was on the same page. And, and, and Danny came along, and Danny's a good guy. I really like Danny. Right up front, but worked in a totally different way uh, from Tom. And I would have to explain every single minute detail of every story to him. And he's going like, "Well, why would Spider-Man do this?" And I'm going. Why would he do a favor for, for Aunt May? Because she's the woman who raised him. <laughs> you know, it's like, do I really have to explain that? And after a while, I realized if Danny and I continue to work together, we're going to drive each other crazy. You know, that's no fun. And, and around the same time, uh, John had, had just gotten... Uh, the Spider-Man gig. So he was working on Amazing Spider-Man and the X-Men. Excuse me, on the X-Men. And the X-Men is a great project for, for was a great project for Garvin Jr. And got a lot of visibility, even more so than Spider-Man in some respects. And But it, it takes up a lot of time because it's all these characters. And so I, I called him up. We were talking and he said, "Well, I think I'm. I think I may have to give up Spider-Man for a while to concentrate on the Avengers." And I'm going, "Well, I'm glad you said that because I'm thinking of leaving too, because I, I have other projects I need to do." And we we both decided, "Okay, let's leave with issue 250." That was you know, and, and I plotted a couple issues ahead. And we decided, you know, issue 250, good place. Good place to pack it in. Big anniversary issue. So, okay, fine. So we did. 
Now, of course, if I'd known that Ron Friends was going to be coming on, <laughs> I might have reconsidered and, and, and stayed because I love working with Ron. But I'm going, well, it was a good place. It was a good place to leave. With the Avengers, I was just fired. So, oh. what can you do? Sorry to dredge, dredge that up then. <laughs> um, going back, then I'll go back to happier things then. Um, once in a while online, I think uh, it was Brevoort had shown uh, uh, a snapshot of your script for The Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. And it's, it's amazing just how detailed and everything in that story is just packed into that script and that plot. Um, how did that kind of come about full cloth? Like that, like that is just such an enormously impactful story. It's kind of slyly at the back of another issue, like, you know, in the, it's kind of wedged at the back, but it's, you know, amongst for a lot of people, one of their favorite Spider-Man stories. Like how did the genesis of that really come about? Yeah, that was, it was a really interesting story. Uh, I sort of woke up with that story one morning. Yeah, it's, it's uh, I think I mentioned Steve Wacker come up with a title while shaving. You know, I, I really don't know where these stories come from sometimes, but just one morning I woke up with the kid who collects Spider-Man, the story almost completely formed in my head. And it was so complete that I was afraid that, I must be remembering some some other story that I read someplace. Like maybe this was like a Superman story I read when I was a kid, you know. And so, yeah. And I just, you know, my mind, being half awake, half asleep, it had substituted Spider-Man in there. It had that feeling. It had a feeling of a story I'd read before. I'm like, ah, oh, where'd the story come from? <laughs> so for the next few days, I was. Living in the city at the time, I, I went around and I, if I ran into a, a, another writer who'd been who was at least as longer or longer than I'd been, I said, "Do you remember a story where you know?" And just sort of briefly outlined it, going, "No, oh, that's a great story. Do you come up with that?" And I thought, "I'm not sure." <laughs> and I went around to a few other people, and I, I, I knew some people who'd who'd written a, uh, Superman before and were well first in the ocean. Has there ever been a Superman story where this thing, thing, no, that'd be a good story, but that's not it. It doesn't exist. Anyway, huh. So after, after the better part of a week, I think, I must have come up with that in my sleep or something. <laughs> so I, I went into Tom DeFalco and I said, like, here's the story. Like, he's going, oh, it'd be a great story. And I said, well, thanks. And I says, but it's not a whole issue. It's like, it's a short story. It's maybe 10, 11 pages tops. And I says, I suppose I could make it part of another story, you know, as a subplot or something. And he's going, no, no, it works too well as a, as a short story. I said, come up with a thing. Maybe, maybe, maybe we'll use it in an annual or something. And I said, okay, fine. So I just had it, had it in the back of my mind until Marvel decided to do that in you know, the assistant editors month you know and I'm going they, you know weird off the wall stuff so I thought okay that's what I'll do here in fact at the time Elliot Brown had become Tom DeFalco's assistant and 
Tom and Elliot called me up because Tom had, had told Elliot about the story, and El- Elliot is is feigning tears over the phone. He says, "That's such a beautiful story. I want it for the assistant editor's month." And I'm like, "Okay, okay, Elliot, stop kidding around. We'll, we'll do it." <laughs> so I I I'd already uh, sort of written. Uh, I think I'd, I'd already uh, come up with a plot or w- was in the middle of working on the plot for uh, um, the issue before that, which had, uh, oh, Thunderbolt. Uh, Thunderbolt, sorry, Thunderbolt from the Wrecking Crew. And again, you know, part, part of my never-ending quest to come up with uh, villains who, who are extremely difficult for Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to, to uh, win against because why should he have an easy time in this after all <laughs> and, and I thought you, you know this could be a two part but I, I think I could do this in an issue and a half and if I did it in an issue and a half then I could do the kid who collects Spider-Man as the second half of the assistant narration so that's what I did and I, I wrote the plot out and uh I think uh, uh, originally I thought that, that, that J.R. was going to draw the whole whole issue, you know. So I I, I think I stole uh, things out to him in the plot, but uh, of course he was busy with, with some X Men stuff and some other things at the time. So I think it was was Tom's idea originally to have Ron do it because Ron had been doing some uh, team up stories and. I think he'd done at least one spectacular Spider-Man story. And uh, so we'd already set things in motion when Danny Fingra became uh, uh, the editor of Spider-Man. And, and he looked at things and he says, yeah, that's fine. And uh, Bob DiNatale, who was Danny's assistant, you know, wound up getting the credit uh, on on the book, which is fine. He went over things he proved him all this stuff although truth to tell uh, Danny did a, a lot of major editing on, on uh, the book before he went away to San Diego that uh, Bob sort of saw through the, the process at the end but uh, you know it, it was Elliot Brown it was Elliot Brown who uh, said that uh, he wanted to see that in the assistant editor's issue and there it was and, and Ron drew it and Terry Austin inked it, and it looked great. Absolutely, it's again. It, it was I great mean, fun it, to write. It, it stands the test of time for sure. I mean, I, uh, I, my son's seven, just about seven years old, and we actually recently sat down and I read that. I wasn't sure how it would hit him or not, or he would, you know, kind of connect to it, and he really did, and he he kind of got it, and you know, it speaks to how well it works on multiple levels and age levels as too, and comprehension levels. So it's it still remains such a such a beautiful issue. Uh, well, I'm, I'm I'm glad it still works for people, and that's that's it's very gratifying. Now, switching gears completely. So after you kind of your you know your tenure of Avengers has ended, and you end up over at DC, was that Mike Carlin who got you to be on the Action Comics Weekly? Uh, yes, yes, it was. Uh, Mike was uh, had become the editor of uh, the Superman titles at the time. I'd worked with with uh, Mike when he was uh, assisting on uh, on the Avengers and 
we'd always gotten along well. And uh, I know uh, John's, uh, uh, John Byrne was uh, getting towards the end of his Superman run at the time. And in fact, I'd plotted my, what were one of my first two issues of Superman. I'd plotted with the idea that they would be like inventory stories that John needed to break or something. And they wanted being my first story. <laughs> but uh, with, with Action Weekly, uh, like it, uh, well, actually the first story I wrote was a Superman annual uh, drawn by Ron Friends, where I brought back, uh, sort of for, for post-crisis purposes, uh, Guardian and the Newsboy Legion, mm. uh, as they appeared more or less in... Uh, Jack Kirby's Jimmy Olsen comics because loved me some Kirby uh, Jimmy Olsen's those were wonderful wacky stories so uh, yeah, I, I, I did that annual first and I, I, I think I might have plotted the two stories that became my first issues of, of uh, Superman and Mike wanted me to uh write the uh, Superman script for Action Weekly for Kurt Salon to draw. And it says, yeah, the whole idea was to be two pages in the middle of the book. And I, I think it took DC's production people three or four uh, issues to figure out, oh, it's supposed to be in the centerfold. Yeah, it's supposed to be in the centerfold, so there's no cap. Oh, God. But the whole idea of, I approached the, the whole thing uh, of, of writing it as though it were a, uh, a modern version of a classic Sunday comics page. Uh, and Kurt, who actually worked on the Superman newspaper strip in, in the 50s, uh, got it right away. You figured, oh, in fact, Kurt, Kurt Swan called me up and told me how much he liked uh, my Superman stories. And I'm going, okay, it's all my clothes, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> if Kurt Swan likes my Superman stories, okay, you know that's that's like you know <laughs> writing a top ten hit. You know, like oh, oh sure. man, what could be better than this? What could be better than this? The, the only the, the only thing that, that topped that was years later when I, I met uh, Jerry Siegel, and he told me that he liked my stories. Oh wow. Yeah. He, he might have just been blowing smoke at me to make me feel good, but you know, nothing, nothing, will ever, <laughs> nothing will ever top that. That's amazing. Yeah. Now, what, what the, I mean, working with Kurt Swan, I mean, that's pretty amazing, but was it, how was it as a writing exercise to only have those two issues, those, those two pages each issue? Because, I mean, that's, I mean, that's really taking the form and really condensing it in a way that's very different. Yeah, well, as, as I said, I approached it as though I were writing a, a Sunday comics page. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, as though I, like, the Superman version of Prince Valiant. You know, it, it's, it's two-page spread. Yeah. It's, you know, has a logo across the top, here's the panels, and you get a new installment every week. And, you know, I'd grown up with, with comics like that. And a lot of the readers uh, of Action Weekly are going... You've never really seen classic, you know, adventure uh, Sunday comics, have you? Because they were like, how come there's only two pages? 
because that's what we're doing here. <laughs> Why isn't it more pages? Because then it would be different. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's like, and it was, that, that Superman strip was also one of the few strips that uh, at the time that uh, I wrote full script. I didn't do it Marvel style. I mm-hmm. did it like a, a classic thing because the pacing was so important to for it to, to play out week after week after week and plus I knew I was working with Kurt Swan who'd, who'd worked that way for decades and knew Superman inside and out I'm going you know, whatever, I, whatever I get wrong Kurt will make right <laughs> and he was just wonderful and, and you know like John Beatty started out on, on the series and, and had to, to bail after a month or so but then we got Murphy Anderson who'd also worked on on Sunday comics pages, you know, and you know, for Murphy, he liked working on it too. I says, I'm working with with Kurt and and Murph, and and, and they both love it. <laughs> you know, hope the readers do. Not enough, enough of them did because not enough of them were buying Action Weekly. Mm. But uh, it was fun while it lasted. When you do start writing Superman there, um, like what was it like to kind of be working alongside and then kind of taking over for the John Byrne era and then coming coming into what is affectionately known as the, tri- the I guess, the Triangle era where, you know, you had all these very separate the creative teams era, yes. working together and you had the Triangle to kind of guide the reader. Well, that was, that was, that was, it was a challenge, but it was great fun because, first off, I grew up on Superman, you know. There were no Marvel comics when I was a kid. <laughs> yeah, but I, I guess there were Atlas comics, but they were many things like Astonishing Tales and, <laughs> and other stuff like that. You know, Two Gun Kid. But uh, uh, I grew up reading Superman and watching Superman on TV. You know, it was a big part of, of my youth. And just the whole idea of working on Superman, it was a, it was a huge responsibility. It was also a total gas. It was just wonderful. I remember, you know, I remember typing up the plot for that Superman annual with uh, Guardian and his boys. And, you know, early on, there's this big you know, scene with, with Superman flying in and, and there's a, a tanker truck uh, on fire and he flies it up into the atmosphere and it blows up and... Everyone's going, oh, and he, and he comes back down to earth, and he's, he's fine, of course. And, you know, and I already plotted that early on in the story, but somewhere, I don't know, page eight or so, we cut to the Daily, uh, the daily Planet, and, so, and I was typing out, you know, Clark Kent enters the city room of the Daily, and I almost wrote Bugle. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the city room of the daily, and I paused over the keyboard and I wrote "Planet." Clark Kent has just walked into the city room of the, of the Daily Planet. I'm working on Superman. I'm really, really working on, on Superman. This is amazing. And, and it, it was fun from the, the first one to, to the very last one. It was just. It was. It was so much. It, it was. In 1988, they had a big Superman comic con, Superman exposition in Cleveland. And I went to that. I had just, I had just written my first couple of, of issues. 
and it's 1988, and it was like the, the, the 50th anniversary of Superman. And I went to it, and I got to meet, I got to meet uh, Kirk Allen, I met Noel Neal, I met Jack Larson, and I buttonholed Jack, and I said, I just started writing Superman, and I want you to know what a big help you are to me. And so he looked at me like, what? And I said, every time I write dialogue for Jimmy Olsen, I hear your voice. And he just sort of smiled, and I said, every time I write Perry White, I hear John Hamilton. <laughs> and he, he like, smiled and nodded, and he knew. It was, and, and it's true, you know, it's like, and and, and super, it, Superman, it, it was sort of a combination of, you know, George Reeves and Chris Reeves and other things. But whenever I wrote Clark Kent, it was George Reeves. Really? Interesting. And Lois, Lois was sort of a composite of, of you know, Noel Neal and Phyllis Coates, and I can't remember the the, the, uh, the actor's name who, who voiced uh, Lois on uh, on the radio series and and, and the, the Fleischer cartoons. But that sort of you know, like you know, tough reporter, you know, don't mess with me. <laughs> A question about your Superman kind of era. What, and this is maybe a, a dumb question, but you know, you're writing adventure comics and then you're writing Superman and action comics. Did it feel different to transition to kind of the quote unquote like original book to the to the kind of the big one, the action comics title? Now that Superman was featured prominently in it again, a uh, little bit, little bit, you know, because because it was the old numbering system. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is some of the highest numbering of a comic book I've ever worked on. This is amazing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> my, my last issue of, of Action Comics was, was issue seven hundred. Whoa, this is great! <laughs> you know, I think that I think I think the, the highest number that I would worked on prior to that was like yeah, Fantastic Four three hundred. Uh, now I'm working on Action Comics seven hundred. Hey, here we go! <laughs> yeah, Some, something with longevity. I, I loved that. And of course, I was working on uh, on Superman. The Superman title with, uh, uh, well, a little bit with, with Mike Mignola, but mostly with, with uh, Kerry Gamble, and then on action, I got to work with with uh, George Perez and, and Bob Cloud and Jackson Bass. This is like, you know, this is great fun. You know, and in fact, I talked to the story. This is, hey, we're working on Superman, and they'd go, yeah, isn't it great? <laughs> No, obviously you're part of a, a, a very infamous group because you know you guys broke down the death of Superman. You actually wrote the uh, novelization of it, which I remember reading as a kid as well. Because I couldn't find all the chapters of the comic, but I could find the death of Superman at at my uh, my library. Um, so, like, what what was it like breaking all that down? And again, like, obviously, you know, most people know the story that you you know you guys were going to get them married, and then here's coming this TV show. Everything kind of gets diverted, and you come up with the death of Superman instead. What kind of like? What was it like to be part of that that group, that core, during these story conferences that kind of breaks out what's going to happen, how Superman's going to die, and then bringing in these new characters? Oh, that was that was amazing. It was an amazing time because when I, as you said we'd have these these meetings once or twice a year. We used to call them Superman summits, and was everyone just throwing ideas out and you know playing off of each other, you know, we, and we, we, 
back in the, in the internet days, we used to get packages of, of, of pages like at least once a week. You know, DC spent a lot of money on FedEx. <laughs> uh, sending us packages, uh, I mean, like photocopies of everyone else's work in progress. So we were we were always acting as a sort of a backstop for each other. So if if like, I, I, for instance, I would I would give you know, this never happened, but if like say Kenny Olson breaks his arm one week in Superman, then next week in Adventures of Superman, he's having a cast put on it. You know, hopefully the correct arm. <laughs> and uh, you know, so we, we'd catch things like that, and it, it was it was great. And I, I used to to kid it at Mike Carlin at one point. I says, you know, you're the editor of some of the best Marvel comics coming out right now. It just happens to say DC in in in, in the corner, and they all involve Superman. <laughs> That's very funny. What um, when when you guys are doing this, and again, like as you said, like the the connection and the continuity between them is so so tight. And again, I don't even know how. Like it's just so interesting that it was able to to exist that you guys were able to weave in and out so seamlessly. And yet it was four separate creative teams, and then you have this big kind of crossover event as well. When you guys were breaking it out, was it always you know was was uh, you using the Eradicator kind of being born again as Superman? Was that always kind of your concept, the one that you wanted to be shepherding through during the reign of Superman? Well, when, when we came up with, with the, uh, the the idea for the story arc within the whole death and life uh, of having the four replacement Superman, we were just, you know, I remember sitting at the meeting, we were coming, trying to come up with stuff. And uh, I, I know that uh, Dan Jurgens had been wanting to bring back the Hank Hinshaw character. And he, he also had this idea of, of sort of a, a cybernetic replacement for Superman. And I, I looked at him and I said, you've been wanting to make him, bring Hinshaw back. Why don't you make him the cyborg Superman? And his eyes lit up. And he's going, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and no one will know until, until, you know, the climactic moment. And I'm going, yeah, it's great. And... I was trying to come up with something that the, uh, the, the Superman I was trying to come up with was, you know, this really hard-bitten, you know, sort of dark Superman. You know, it was sort of, because there were, there were, at the time, you know, things were getting really grim and gritty in the comics. You know, and you had know, all these guys, you know, you had Wolverine and the Punisher and all these guys, you know, who were like, I used to, to say it was it was the old Hollywood dictum, which, which you once had a character say, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And it's the job of the good guys to kill the bad guys. You can't have Superman doing that. He's not Superman. Then. He's, a, he's a bully. If he has all this power, and he's just wiping people out. But I said, what if we had a Superman like that? And I don't remember what... what possessed me to, to use the eradicator but we wanted this sort of the cold Kryptonian Superman who would be doing this and I remembered you know the last we'd seen the eradicator he'd been like dispersed in, in you know, random energy in Superman's fortress and I'm going what are his energies are still out there and they get condensed and one thing led to another, and I'm going, and he could be this cold Kryptonian force. I says, that sounds like the Eradicator. 
and we use him. And I also thought the, the eradicator had, had sort of come to the, the, the end of the line. It's like, what more can we do with this guy? You know, he's done this, he's done this, he's done this. Okay, okay. In, in this story, he'll, he'll be the substitute for Superman, you know, and he sacrifices himself at the end. And I guess we're victims of, of our own success because before the series, uh, the, the, the whole storyline ended, uh, Mike said, oh, by the way, the Eradicator has been promised to, the, to the, this other office for the, this, new, uh, this new Outsiders book. And I'm going, what? <laughs> He's supposed <laughs> to sacrifice himself. And, and, and so I said, how about if I create a new Eradicator who has these powers and looks like him, but is slightly different? And said, okay, go and, go and do something. Because the Eradicator knew that, that Clark Kent was Superman. Hmm. And it was occurring to me, there are too many people know that Clark Kent is Superman. I mean, that's a really important secret. Uh, it, it shouldn't just be common knowledge. If it does, it radically changes the series into something completely different. So I came up with this new Eradicator, who, basically using uh, the body of, of the original one who was dying, and this scientist from Star Wars who's dying, his mind goes into it, and he doesn't know what the Eradicator knew, but he, he has the powers. And he went off to the Outsiders. That's, that's so fascinating. Yeah. So I, I'll let us wind up, because I know uh, we, we've gone way over our time, but... Um, uh, what was it like kind of putting together issue 700 and what were the circumstances by which you actually left the book after that? Uh, with, with, at the, at 700, I thought that was a good place uh, to, to, to end things because uh, I'd been through all this stuff plus I'd spent a crazy year uh, putting uh, work, not only working on the uh, the comic series, but I spent just an insane like six months writing the uh, the novelization, mm. and I didn't want to get burnt out on Superman. I took a couple issues off that that, uh, that Carl Kiesel wrote and did a great job on, and I think and Louise Simonson did a couple issues. Mm-hmm. I came back and, and we're doing this this big storyline with with Luther it's going to completely change that and, and big havoc in Metropolis I'm going well this is a, a great climactic moment this is a good place to end it and, and I was going I'm going to take a year off because I really needed uh, really needed some time off away from comics to you know recharge my batteries so I didn't get burnt out and you know Mike Carlin, God bless him, agreed to this with the notion of like, you know, we have an idea for a fifth book. We'll talk in a few months. <laughs> you know, so I think he already had he already had the idea for what would become a Superman Man tomorrow. And I said, yeah, fine. So I took some time off. It was I recharged my batteries, and, and at the end of the year, Mike says, ready to do some more Superman? I'm going. Yeah, I think so, as long as it's not too over the top. And they said, how about a quarterly book called Man of Tomorrow? And I'm like, sign me up. 
<laughs> so I have um, actually a listener question, which was uh, doesn't really kind of fit in any specific time frame, but just more of a an overall look at your career, which was how much of an influence uh, has your wife been on your work, specifically your use of comic book science? Oh, Carmela is is a great backstop. Uh, she has a degree in chemistry, but. You know, I mean, we've subscribed to Science News forever and a day, and you know, if there's something about science that she doesn't know, she knows where to steer me to find it. You know, when, when uh, in, in fact, little known fact, she came up with the atomic number for kryptonite uh, back when uh, John Byrne was was uh, still running Superman. Oh, really? He called us up one day because we. Yammer all the time before email. We would talk on the phone a lot, and uh, he said, "I want to do this uh, story with uh, with kryptonite. And I, and I want to come up with some some uh, some place. I want to figure out where it is on the periodic table." And I said, "Let me get my wife, the chemist, in on this." <laughs> and she figured out what the atomic number would be, and you know. There's, and is in looking up some of, of the, the technical stuff, she said, interestingly, a lot of ores in this group are green. And I said, there you go. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Very cool. Well, again, Rod... Element, element 125 or something like that. That's awesome. Uh, well, Roger, I mean, I, I, I could spend, as I said prior to the podcast, I could spend days talking to you about all your work, but um, we've talked for almost two hours, so I have to be respectful of your time, but thank you so much for agreeing to come back and, and wax rap- rhapsodic for us about all these different things you've worked on. Um, as, a, as a big fan of yours, it's been tremendous. Um, actually, one last thing, I guess I, I, I promised a, a friend that I would uh, ask one last question for him. Um, so yes. let me just pull up his question before I forget. Uh, he just wanted to know uh, which story are you most proud of looking back? Oh, there's there's no one story. <laughs> uh, it's, it's like it's like asking who your favorite child is. <laughs> the, uh, I mean, there, there there are a lot of stories that, that I look back and I'm going, oh, that really holds together well. I enjoyed that. Uh, the, uh, the the first super issue of Superman that I did with Mike Mignola was was. Great fun! I enjoyed that a lot. The, the, the whole the whole run of uh, of Captain America, if you can consider that a graphic novel, mm. suppose that uh, the uh, Doctor Strange, Doctor Doom graphic novel. Of course, I, I enjoyed. And I've I've been I've been lucky to work with a lot of great people in my career. You know, I've worked with with John and Sal Buscema. I got to work with Steve Ditko. I got to work with Gil Kane. Uh, just so, you know, John Byrne a number of times, Ron Friends a number of times, not nearly enough, either of them. Uh, Tom Crummett, so many, so many great guys. And I got to, I got to work with Bruce Tim on an Avengers story. I got to, I got to work with Steve Rude on uh, a, 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 an Incredible Hulk Superman story. You know, oh, what could right. be better than that? That's right. I forgot about that story. Uh, so much fun. 
Actually, I'll, I'll throw in one last thing, um, just because it kind of reminds me of that period. You did uh, one, I think only one, maybe two amalgam titles. What was it like working during that process where you had Marvel and DC actually collaborating on something like that? Not just a you know, team-up story, but actually kind of fusing their characters together. Oh, you mean uh, the, the Hulk Superman story? Uh, no, I think the didn't you do one of the one of the Spider Boy stories? Oh right, yeah, that was that was uh, the, the Spider Boy team up, that, and that was uh, through uh, Carl Kiesel's, uh That's right. Yes. Intervention because he was supposed to write it, and, and he was he had some deadline hassles, and he says it's it, it's Spider Boy and various incarnations of the Legion of Superheroes, basically. And you've you've written you've written Spider-Man and you've you've written Legion. Can you help me out on this? And I'm going, oh sure. And and that that was a hoot. I, I think we, we sort of tag teamed the plotting, and uh, Carl scripted the first half, and I scripted the second half. Oh, awesome! And, and I got to I got to have Richard Nixon be the villain. <laughs> what could be better than that absolutely well again Ron thank you so uh, sorry Roger sorry Rog thank you so much for taking the time and uh, it's been a lot of fun thank you so much well thank you Adam thanks for having me <laughs>